and welcome to episode 35 of the Graph Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different as we're going to break it down into two parts. The first few minutes of this episode is going to be my reaction to everything happening with the Live Golf Invitational Series, the controversial league backed by the Saudi government. It's definitely caused a lot of buzz this week as they get underway in London for their first event. And it's caused a lot of buzz throughout the year, really, uh, as the entire structure of professional golf is kind of hanging the balance right now. A ton of moving parts there, so I will try to break all of that down. And in the second half of the episode, Jeremy Schilling and I are going to talk about the future of Phil Mickelson, who is one of the participants in Live Golf. 14 months ago, he was winning the PGA Championship as the oldest major champion in history. And he has since gone on a roller coaster since then, to say the least. Um, the, the peak, or maybe I should say the valley, of which came back in February when he made some pretty incendiary comments about trying to leverage the Saudi government in an attempt to make changes on the PGA Tour. He then skipped the Masters and this year's PGA Championship as he was reeling from public outlash, essentially. He went into hiding. And now he is back playing this week in London for the first Live Golf event. This pod will go into what his next moves are, where his legacy stands right now, and if we will ever see Lefty on the PGA Tour again. Hard to believe I'm saying those words, but that's where we are right now. Before we start, I just wanted to call attention to the club tab on our site, graph.golf. We have a lot of new articles being written there. Some of them great for those who are just being introduced to the game. And some of them great for those who want to learn more about analytics. You know, of course, here at Graph, we are creating a smart golf ball and analytics platform to allow you to be the smartest player in your foursome. And you can find out more information about the product on our site. You can also sign up for our newsletter there, which gives you the latest product updates. All right, here is the first part of the podcast, a short breakdown and reaction to the live golf situation. So to really understand everything going on with Live Golf, you have to understand the structure of the PGA Tour because it's quite a bit different than other major professional sports leagues. The PGA Tour is a member-run organization with a mission statement that says its top priority is to treat all members equally and to do what is best for those members. There are no owners, like in the NFL or NBA or, or NHL, they are technically a 501c6 nonprofit organization, meaning that the organization is exempt from federal and state taxes. And this is one of the main drivers in the PGA Tour being able to contribute more to charity than the four major pro sports leagues combined. So how does the golf part factor in here? Well, the PGA Tour's mission is to get as much money into as many pockets as possible for its members. If you are a member of the tour, regardless of whether you are Tiger Woods or some guy that you've never heard of, the tour is charged with doing everything it possibly can to get money into everyone's hands. How does it do that? Well, first, there are sponsorships of tournaments, which are based on lucrative television contracts. And the PGA Tour attempts to raise their purses as much as possible via those means. If Rory McIlroy wins a tournament, 
he may collect $2 million, but if William McGirt wins the same tournament, he would also collect the same amount of money. It's a meritocracy, and there are no contracts for on-course performance beyond external sponsorships like equipment companies or apparel brands. The PGA Tour also wants to maximize this pool by hosting as many tournaments as they possibly can. There are nearly 50 events on the calendar, so there is ample opportunity for all of their members involved. It's also worth noting that the PGA Tour owns and operates the Corn Ferry Tour, which is essentially golf's version of AAA baseball. And they have other tours as well, such as the Canadian-based tour and a Latin America tour. Everyone on these tours is technically a PGA Tour member, and in theory, they all have equal access to prize money. Well, Live Golf, a series of eight events in 2022 and likely somewhere around 15 events in 2023, has come in with a new idea. They are backed by the Saudi government, who has endless piles of cash, and they are interested in signing players to mammoth contracts worth far, far more than what they could possibly make on the PGA Tour. Between Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, and Bryson DeChambeau, Live Golf has reportedly paid out somewhere between 400 to 500 million just for those three players. And there are events where players can make up to $4 million for winning. Why would Live Golf do this? Uh, it's, it's not likely that they are doing this to make money as a profitable business. It's far more likely that they are doing this as a sports washing attempt to distract from their disastrous human rights record. But no matter what the case is, PGA Tour players are starting to realize, hey, I can play a set schedule that offers me more flexibility. The tournaments are only 54 holes. They're all shotgun starts. And I can make guaranteed money with very little stress. It's a great opportunity, especially for some of the older players who are near the end of their careers. To say it a different way, Live is exposing a structural issue with the tour. It's paying players directly and doing it by a value basis, although you can argue these guys are not at all worth what they are being paid. It's still based on value. The PGA Tour has known this for a while, and in my estimation, they have been pretty slow to react to all of this. There have been some Band-Aid fixes over the last few years. For instance, they came out with a player impact program where the top 10 most valuable players were given a few extra million at the end of the year to satisfy them. There have also been increases in tournament purses across the board, and there have been a few other minor fixes that have been made to try to push money towards star players without crossing that barrier of simply handing them checks to keep them there, which they would not be allowed to do under their current structure. So they had to come up with performance-based incentives that tack on to a player's on-course earnings. So what will the PGA Tour do to keep players? Well, they're going to suspend the players who left. And they're going to hope that the major championships, the Ryder Cup, and the official world golf ranking will all keep live golf participants out. And this is where it gets to be pretty murky because there is inevitably going to be a legal battle to see whether the PGA Tour has the right to actually ban players. The, the players are technically independent contractors. And Live Golf argues that the PGA Tour has a monopoly on pro golf that restricts the players from going wherever they want and maximizing their earnings potential. 
we're going to have to wait to see what happens there. I'm definitely not a lawyer. It's it's really all up in the air. But here's my opinion based on on what I do know. The PGA Tour's business model worked brilliantly for a long time, but the tour is now hamstrung by its mandate to treat all members equally. Packing the schedule with as many tournaments as possible, that may protect the lower half of its membership, but it comes with a significant cost. The gap between majors and non-majors has widened significantly. Top players feel forced to compete in more events than they desire. The quote-unquote off-season has become a nebulous moving target. Fans are simply confused and exhausted after being told that every tournament on the calendar is special and fields get watered down to embarrassing levels. You could just look at the, the Canadian Open field this week where 61-year-old John Houston is playing. That would be a great get back in the mid-90s, but not so much in 2022. In a lot of ways, it's tough to see this because it's romantic to think that William McGirt and Rory McIlroy can earn the same paycheck in any given week, but their value to the tournament is nowhere near the same. Live Golf is exposing that. I'm not saying that Live Golf is right. In a lot of ways, I think it's a, a terrible thing for the game. But I do want to say that, you know, while Live has been a little bit all over the place in its execution of this idea, and there's lots to make fun of, notably the team logos look like clip art, and they've tripped all over themselves trying to get this first event set up this week. It has comical leadership. It's been kind of a ham-fisted approach. Live is still exposing the flaw in a meritocracy model that no longer applies to modern golf and athletics in general at the highest level. The player impact program and the fall series changes that could happen to the PGA Tour are akin to looking at paint samples when the house is catching on fire. I can't state enough that the world of pro golf could start devolving into something like boxing where there are a ton of one-off events, and besides the majors, everything will come down to just money and entertainment. The majors and the official world golf ranking could exclude lift players in the future, but there will inevitably be other lucrative one-off events and series that poach top players if the PGA Tour can't find a way to adapt. I mean, what happens when Amazon is offering $10 million to the winner of a three-day event? Bans and blackballing the PGA Tour are just band-aid fixes at the moment. So what should they do? I've given a lot of problems and not a lot of solutions so far. Here's my kind of solution. If I were the PGA Tour, I would work to adopt a new business model, one where the players have equity as owners. And I think this would be best served as turning the Tour into a two-tier system where the top players all play against each other. Guys who really value flexibility and trophies above all else. They could have a limited schedule with much larger purses. You could protect those stars with exemptions that keep them in the top tier for multiple years at a time. Say you win a major, maybe you stay there for three to five years automatically. And you could add in promotion and relegation. So there's some turnover in that top tier as well. The best college players can be promoted directly to the lower tier rather than to the Corn Ferry Tour, allowing rising talents to prove themselves for a year before potentially entering into the big leagues. But still, within that, there has to be more creativity with the entertainment aspect of the tour. Have the top five Americans compete against the top five Euros or top five Aussies in a college-style event. I think that would be very entertaining. 
everyone is dying for a mixed event where the top PGA Tour and LPGA Tour players come together. Make these tournaments distinct, distinguishable instead of a repeat of the WGCs, which failed miserably. Personally, I'm not dying for team elements in golf, but they could positively impact gambling and other elements of the fan experience. So I think it is important. This model does negatively impact the bottom half of the PGA Tour membership who would be playing for sim- for, for smaller purses on a juiced up Corn Ferry Tour. But that might be a choice the Tour has to make at this point. The PGA Tour has been slow to adapt and hesitant to implement creative solutions for the past 10, 15, 20 years, all while taking a pretty defensive stance along the way. I think that's a mistake. They might be forced into doing something creative and innovative to keep the top players in their corner at this point. I don't see the PGA Tour completely imploding at any point. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but there have been alarms been going off for a long time at this point, and something does need to happen. A lot of this will be settled in court, and it's always possible that Live Golf becomes something like the USFL or XFL. But regardless of their success or failure, I think the PGA Tour is vulnerable, and they are in a big heap of trouble right now. Now, in the second part of our podcast, we're going to be talking to Jeremy Schilling about Phil Mickelson, who has really been the ringleader in Live Golf. He signed on to this league, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions. So here is that conversation. Today, we're going to talk about Phil Mickelson and a lot to talk about over the past year. Um, I was hoping just to start this with us together, kind of summarizing everything that's happened in the last year, which I don't think is possible because of how many different things that have happened, but yeah. How long is this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not too long. Uh, Sorry to to interrupt, but it it, it actually is a great summation of where we are with Phil, right? It's like, where do you start? Is it the golf digest interview? Is it the Alan Shipduck book? Is it his on-course plays? Is it the off-course plays? Is it the fact that he won the PGA Championship and then played horrendous golf uh, the rest of the year and into the start of this year? Is it the rumors that you and I and everybody else in this world have been hearing for months? Like, where do we start? Where do we go? Where do we finish? I have zero idea. So you're the host. You, you, you go ahead and I'll follow your lead. Okay, I'd like to start by making a list of everything that has happened <laughs> since his PGA Championship win last year. Uh, so basically a year. I'll, I'll name off a few things, and then you've already named off some, so we'll, we'll skip past those. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, – he argued that random users about John Rahm's vaccination status – uh, we're going way back here. We're starting. We're starting 2021 summer. Um, remember that attack on an investigative reporter from the uh, Detroit News when he was at the yeah. Royal, a, yeah. a story about him being connected to a uh, a, a bookie who had refused to pay him five hundred thousand dollars in gambling debts. <laughs> um, the attack on the USGA for the rule changes for limits and the length of drivers to forty six inches. And uh, and the PGA Tour green reading books as well, attack attacking them. And then we go into the a little bit more recently. We talked about some of the interviews that were done. Also, the 
the media rights. Remember that talking about the some twenty billion dollars in digital moments that that PGA Tour pros have created that the the t- players do not have access to that the PGA Tour is kind of holding on to. There's a lot. Is there anything else that I'm missing that's been really kind of important in the past year? Um, no, but I, I think if you're going to bring up the media rights, it's significant for us to, to stop there. There's a lot of unknowns, folks, out there. There are a lot of rumors out there, whether you're looking at Phil's financial status and how much money he has, how much he may have gambled away, um, his marital status, his personal life. There's rumors everywhere, right? And it comes down in the end to this facts when you call the PGA tour a dictatorship, it is not when you give off a whole bunch of lists of financial numbers related to digital rights that are flat out untrue. They may be holding on the rights, but they're just not factual numbers. It, it, it doesn't help your cause. And then if you put together a couple of these pieces that he is potentially in need of money, he potentially needs to get money. Well, we got guaranteed money in the Saudi series, but also NFTs and things with, with crypto and experiences that come from potentially using his great digital moments. And he incorrectly put the masters, which, charges you a fortune for using your your media rights in uh, commercials and other advertisements into this discussion. And the problem that that creates is a vision here of somebody who is in need of cash, has no way out, and could be underwater significantly. That is troublesome. And I think we need to talk about the idea of consequences for that and his future the consequences it seems like a lot of this has been brought upon himself right i mean just from what 1000 percent. you cannot like the way the pga tour does something you and i both get bored of 72 whole 18 whole events right of course are we gonna go out and call jay monahan a dictator Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. I don't think you and I are, are you know, going to write it in our publications. We, we, we might see ourselves uh, finding new gigs. So I think it's both the way his mind has been contorted f- by whoever or whatever to create this and B, the, 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 the extent to which, I mean, when you admit to Alan Shipnuck, that you are creating a, a facade and a charade to be able to get your points and using the Saudi Arabians as a way to gain points and gain leverage with the PGA Tour. I mean, how do you win back fans? How in the bleeping world do you win back fans? And that, I believe, is the ultimate consequence because, yes, there will be some fans that, they don't care who the bleep is playing. They just want to sit down and watch golf. I get it. They're going to be Phil fans through and through. But when you, whether it's sports washing or just go to the extent of creating a fake charade to create personal egotistical 
narcissistic leverage for yourself, very hard to regain favor. And I think that's why corporate America said, we're out, Phil. It all really smacks of desperation, desperation for cash in particular, I would say. I don't think that he does any of this without some of the, the gambling woes that have come to light that I think a lot of us have been aware of over a long period of time. You know, in Alan Shipnuck's book, the the $40 million of gambling losses between 2010 and 2014, I think that's just kind of the the tip of the iceberg in terms of what he's gambled away in his life from and, some of those stories. It, and I think let's just make clear for the listeners out there what you and I who have been around this game know. And I'm not speaking out of turn. Luckily, it's a podcast. If it is, he can edit this out. (laughs) But I think when I say that Phil enjoys his time talking about sports, trying to figure out who's going to win and why, and maybe placing some money, this has been a longstanding thing for Phil. And when you place a lot of bets, it can be very easy to get into debt. I think these are all facts that are universally agreed to. Right, Sean? A hundred percent. I think some of the stories too about, I mean, it, he had the famous bet on the Ravens to win the Super Bowl when they, when they did. Um, and I think some of the stories that have come to light of him sitting in the locker room and going through bets, you know, 50 to a hundred bets at a time in the same way that someone would swipe on Tinder or something. Um, I think that's pretty indicative of, some of the gambling issues that that he's had that have kind of been at the root of a lot of this. Right. And I think when, when Sean asked me to come on folks, the crux of this podcast is, is what's next for Phil. And to me, it's a multidimensional issue and and we're going to get through all, all, all of these, but one of which is if you need cash, you need a way to ensure yourself, you get cash. And the, you know, for people trying to figure out how did Phil, who's won all these times in the PGA Tour and the PGA Tour champions and won, you know, a whole bunch of majors and have done all these amazing things end up with money woes. It goes back to the gambling. And, and yes, he, he, he can complain publicly about California taxes, but it's the gambling and living life in an exorbitant way that got him into this. And that's what folks need to understand out there. He got himself into this situation and he now needs to dig himself out of it. And I don't quite know how he's going to do that. Well, we have one route for him and that would be to (laughs) take money from the Saudis and, and go and never play a PGA tour event again. So let me ask you, do you think we ever see him again on the PGA Tour? Could he come back? Assuming that a suspension, you know, is no longer in place. We both, I think, believe that it was in place or it still is in place. Um, but assuming that it ends at some point, which it should, would he come and back? And let's be clear, this is a PGA Tour suspension. Yes. And not a suspension put in place by any, any of the other major governing bodies is a PGA tour suspension, non-suspension. 
the biggest uh, correlation is the Dustin Johnson leave of absence that back in 2013. Yeah. I'm not sure if, if we will ever find out as fact or fiction, but that he, you know, had, basically had the same thing for the issues he was going through at the time. And he's, re- and he has obviously recovered, become a great winner on the PGA tour. Once again, major champion, great father. Everybody agrees. He's a great dad, you know, whole nine yards. And I don't know if we'll see him on the PGA Tour again. I don't think we'll see him in 2022 on the PGA Tour. I think one of the interesting things that Phil needs to decide and figure out, and only Phil knows, is what is the best way for me to get guaranteed money if I am in financial ruin? Is that through PGA Tour programs, the playing of 15 events that gets you 50, you know, 50K or 15K, whatever that Play 15 program is, mm-hmm. whether it's PIP money, whether it's something else. Now, if he wins player impact program money, that is just going to, I mean, fans are going to be like, and I, and I think his fellow players are going to be like, what in the world? How does Phil win this? He, he basically wanted to end this tour. Well, well, what the heck is he doing with this money? So the easy decision for him is to, just walk aside and and leave the PGA tour and yet you're leaving every major permanently you're leaving every major permanently in my view I don't know honestly um I think you know you mentioned the majors he's going to be exempt for all the majors for I mean, for, you know, for the Open Championship and the Masters, obviously, the Open Championship for another 10 years until he turns 60 and the Masters for as long as he wants, you know, hypothetically, and then the other two for, what, another at least five years, right? Um, To give all that up, I mean, that's a lot of major starts that he would be forfeiting, which is incredible to think about him not playing in those. I think a lot of this just comes down to legacy versus need. You know, how much, you know, Nick Faldo said last week that Phil needs to come back to the PGA Tour to protect his legacy. But how much of his legacy is just some of these, you know, uh, impulsive, sometimes irrational decisions that he has made over the years? It kind of is who he is at this point. Um, I Let don't me know. stop you right there. Yeah. Do you think Phil understands that? And I'm not saying, folks, extent, that yes. that that he has mental issues. That's that's not that's not where I'm going with this. But there are people, whether it's degenerate gamblers, whether it's you know sex addiction, whether it's alcohol addiction, whether it's drug addiction who have said after they get out of it that they never realized how far they were in. And these are household names, great people that people look high upon, and they did not realize how deep they had gotten themselves woven into this web of personal destruction. Do you think Phil realizes that he is throwing away his legacy potentially and or has, and that he is ruining potentially, hypothetically, you know, depending on what rumor you hear, his family dynamic for a very long time, if not forever. I guess the best answer I could give is that if he's not going to realize that now, he probably never will have any ability to process that, right? I mean, if it's not going to come to light now for him in this really dark moment, 
it probably never will. Um, I, I, I think that he's a guy who he desperately needs attention and he desperately needs money. It would seem, um, I don't know how he reconciles that with how people are going to view him for the rest of his career and his legacy. Um, I, I think people who are like that, you know, they, they want the spotlight on, on them and he may not want to play in these majors for the next decade and, and kind of fade off and not play very well over he might just want to play for another couple of years and make a lot of money and then try to try to figure out a way to to get out that might that might be what he wants i don't know what do you think so i think part of the the aspect of this that has to be included is i don't know where phil thinks his game is permanently if he thinks his game stinks, he's got to take this live money and run if he needs it, right? Because at that point, who cares about legacy? He's trying to amend financial issues. Right. If he or- thinks he can win on the PGA Tour, which I do think he can and win majors. Sorry, I do think he thinks he can. And I do think he thinks he can win more majors. Then he's in a real conundrum. So I think that at least a decent part of the reason why he skipped the PGA championship was because he was not comfortable with where his game was at. And I, I think he probably would have been pretty embarrassed had he gone and played in that tournament. Um, I, he's not a PGA tour player anymore. He's not at that yeah. caliber of player. I, I, I don't want to diminish that. And I also want to acknowledge that. And I also want to just make sure that people out there know that this is a very multi-layered decision. It's not as easy as saving your legacy. It's not as easy as saving one tour versus the other. Because these rumors, uh, which, are, which have come out, in fact, in, in uh, bits and pieces in Alan's book, um, in other... Um, you know, places, but also rumors behind the scenes change the dynamic of the decision he's making. This is very easy for a Colin Morikawa, right, to decide, do I go to Saudi Arabia or do I stay in the U.S.? The the levels of things that he has to consider are way different than the level of things that Phil has to consider. And when you don't know what your family dynamic is and you don't know what your financial dynamic is and you also don't know where your golf game is, that's a, a three-pronged thing. I don't know how he would have done last week. I, I think St. Andrews is the type of venue that, look, Tiger thinks he can win there. And I think Phil feels the same way. But the only thing more brutal than the American press is the British press. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just to give folks an idea, I was on a corporate uh, a conference call two days ago with uh, uh, with uh, Rory, and this is to promote a product that that he is putting out into the universe. It was his first time speaking since Saturday at the PGA Championship. He did not speak to the press after Sunday at the PGA. This 
press conference Q&A, which was supposed to be about the app uh, and about this, this service, had the majority of questions about, from the Irish press about his PGA performance. <laughs> like, that's not what you want to be going into, right? And I, I think he's stuck a little bit in not knowing how he wants to do this. Seth Wall hinted at this last week, not knowing how and what direction and, and how you kind of make one plus one plus one plus one all add up right so that you can play your best golf that week. And it's sad. It's really, really sad. And Tiger, I thought, was extremely blunt last week at the PGA when, when he talked about the, the, the vision of the tour that Phil has versus Tiger has. And the fact that Tiger hasn't reached out personally, the fact that they just are on two different spectrums here, I think speaks to the multi-layeredness of this. Um, and I, and I, I know that one of the things that you wanted to bring up was, was Webb Simpson's comments. And I think you're seeing a wide spectrum of how the tour players feel about this. Yeah, let me, let me go ahead and read that quote from from Webb, this is from an ESPN story that um, that came out recently uh, last week. Um, this is Webb talking just about the the cancel culture, I guess, in terms of uh, just what it how it how it's it, how it impacts athletes. I guess all people at this point. Um, he says, "quote We're in a cancel culture right now. If you say one thing or somebody digs up something in your past, they cancel you." There have been many situations out here and in sports where a player might have done something wrong. Sure, we can all agree, but I would rather be in an environment where it's a forgiveness culture, not a cancel court culture. I'm going to screw up. I know I'm going to screw up. I'm going to say things I don't mean or say things in the moment that sound bad. And I would hope people give me the benefit of the, of the doubt. And yeah, there should be consequences for when we screw up, but I don't think it should be as much as we've seen where it's like, hey, you're out, you're gone. Um, so that's, that, that was the, those are the comments that he made. Um, I just, I couldn't disagree with that more really. I think Mickelson, his consequences for his actions have been deserved. I mean, he, he tried to, you know, he, he tried to kind of get in bed with the Saudis as as leverage against the PGA tour, which, which is really a, a pretty, pretty massive and bold, thing to to do and um i think it it's there's a difference between canceling someone and, and just the the consequences that that come with something like this that that he's facing right now um and i, I don't think there's anyone stopping phil from making a decision to come out i mean to me when when he withdrew from the pg of america and the pga of America has to make a, a statement on his behalf and it's not coming from Phil and he's gone into hiding to me. That's, that's kind of making things worse in this regard and kind of, it makes it seem like he's being, he, he's kind of canceling himself in a lot of ways, not really standing up and talking to the press like you're mentioning. And um, so I think that's a little bit skewed on Webb's part and, and there have been similar sentiments as well from from other players that have had um, yeah and and you know what I just thought of while sitting here um which is Greg you know you look at Greg Norman's comments which are despicable abominable and should be condemned 
And obviously, Sean uh, Bratches uh, left the Live Group because of it. Um, he did not feel comfortable working for Mr. Norman um, going forward after those comments that Greg made um, about the Saudis. And you compare that to Southern Hills and the guys complaining about the bunkers. <laughs> Nobody canceled any player for complaining that there were pebbles in the bunkers at Southern Hills and that it was a different kind of sand. Right. Yet Greg Norman and those comments deserved to be canceled and literally one of his biggest hires left because of it. And I think that if Phil can come forward and say, look, I messed up. I got this and this and this wrong. I'm going to do these steps to improve myself, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think Phil's canceled. PGA said he could play. Nobody's stopping him. You know, service suspension is not a lifetime ban. Um, and I think that I, I think that people here have to kind of take a step back that that what what Phil did was wrong, but it didn't hurt anyone if that makes sense. Like I don't think anybody has been physically injured because of it. He financially injured himself. He's the one who got hurt for it, right? Mm -hmm. There are worse acts that happen from people who deserve to be canceled. And I think that we need to look at Phil from a 360-degree view, which is there's, there's punishment, there's consequences. And if that's you know, a long-term ban from the PGA Tour, a long-term suspension, then, then, you, then you deserve it. If you go play with the Saudis and that gets the lifetime ban that Jay Monahan has promised, so be it, that you've made your own bet at that point. But I think some people try to call cancel culture really quickly, whether it's Pebbles and Bunkers or Phil or Greg Norman. There's a big old gap there, and we have to remember that. And I think one last note on just like the notion of cancel culture in general and as it applies to this situation, I, I do agree with people saying that, okay, you know, Phil makes a mistake and we can never let him play another golf tournament again or anything like that. That would be, to me, that would be kind of canceling him. But we do need to let people have the ability to rehab from from making bad mistakes like he's made there has to be that ability for people to do that they the consequence can't be that he can never play in another golf tournament for the rest of his life um and i don't think anyone's really saying that um but at the same time i think there needs to be a path forward for him and i think it starts by standing up and kind of taking accountability for everything that he's done which correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think we've really got that from him, from him at this point, he did issue a statement. You know, never really apologized, mentioned live, but did not mention the PGA Tour. It was a non-apology. It was yeah. really a non-apology. I, mean, I think that's very. He, he apologized for hurting a bunch of people's feelings while all while while not apologizing for what got him in in trouble in the first place. Yes, yeah, which I is think... not helpful to your cause, but like we've been saying, it, it really comes down to that, the, the desperation that he seems to have right now to, to add money to his bank account. 
Um, but I really hope that for his sake, that the ending to this is not him declaring bankruptcy and getting divorced and going into a really dark place and never playing golf again. I, I don't and think to be clear, neither of us are reporting either of those things. Uh, uh, those two things are happening. I'm no. I just want to be clear. Neither of us are, we're just playing on a hypothetical here. A hundred percent a hypothetical. I don't want that to be the future. I don't think golf is better in any way from that happening. I still believe that golf is way better with him a part of it than it is without him. Yes. I, mean, I am I, with you completely there. Well, we can absolutely agree that this is a very murky future for him. And a lot of details are uncertain at this point, but Jeremy, thanks for coming on and talking about it and going through some of these difficult conversations here with me. Uh, def definitely appreciate you coming on. My, my pleasure as always. Thank you again to Jeremy for coming on to the podcast. Shortly after we recorded this, Phil Mickelson did come out with a press conference with the Saudi Golf League, which he joined, of course. And he didn't miss a lot if you didn't see that press conference because he played it pretty close to the vest, didn't really say much, did reiterate an apology, but wouldn't say who he was apologizing to or for. And there wasn't really much out of that press conference that was, was noteworthy. Um, he did say several times that he doesn't condone human rights violations, but would not get any more specific than that and would not say whether he was banned by the PGA Tour. So even though he has joined the league, still a lot of unanswered questions with his legacy. And it will be very interesting to see what happens moving forward with him. That's all the time that we have for this week's episode. We'll see you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.